1: Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast where each week I share practical and simple tips and techniques to help you take back control of your mental health and life. At one point or another, we've all done something to undermine our best interests. Even the most successful people get in their own way, often even without realizing it. So, in this episode, I sit down with Dr. Judy Ho to discuss the six steps to stop self-sabotage, why humans are predisposed to self-sabotage, how to identify the triggers to self-sabotage that are unique to you, and how to deal with grief and loss, and how to remove the limits we place on our minds that may be holding us back from our healing. Dr. Judy Ho is a triple board certified clinical and forensic neuropsychologist and co-host of cbs's the doctors her book stop self-sabotage six steps to unlock your true motivation harness your willpower and get out of your own way is amazing and filled with great simple to do tools and exercises for long-lasting change thank you for tuning in once again to my podcast and for all your support If you liked today's episode, be sure to leave a review on iTunes and share this episode and podcast with friends and family and on social media. Welcome, Dr. Judy, to the show. I'm so thrilled to have you here. I love your new book. Congratulations. Thank You've you just Doctor. released it, haven't you? Yes, it was. It was done just a few months ago. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, it's so interesting. And I've listened to you a couple of podcasts, and I'm really thrilled because I believe you bring something really important to the whole world of mental health. So I'm very excited to dive in and, and <laughs> share your wonderful knowledge with all my listeners. So oh, thank, thank you, you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really excited to be oh, no, here. It's fantastic. It's so exciting. Okay. So the first first thing I want to ask you is what got you interested in, I know you're a neuropsychologist, what yeah. uh, that's also my background as well, what got yes. you into neuropsychology and specifically studying or doing research in the field of sabotaging, how we sabotage our thought life? Well, I love
0: neuropsychology because it really focuses on how our brain and how the patterns in our brain really affect our behavior. Mm, and I love, I love getting deeper into that. Concept Because people used to think that there was this mind-body dualism, right? That there is this idea of the body being separate of the mind. And now we know that it's completely linked. And so Mm -hmm. whatever the mind is reacting to, the body will react as well. And I always really was very, very interested in that relationship. And Mm -hmm. when we talk about self-sabotaging behaviors, that's exactly what we're talking about. It's like you say to yourself that you want to reach a goal, that you want to do something. And somehow, why aren't your behaviors following through with that? How come Mm. you're making missteps? And I think it really does go back to our neurobiology. Mm. It goes back to something that is very evolutionarily based and something that Mm. is really essential to humans that kind of gets turned on its head. So something that was actually very good and survivalist when taken in the extremes ends up being a problem.
1: And that's really what I think self-sabotage's roots are. Very, very good. That's excellent. Yeah, I do a lot of work in mind-body research showing mm-hmm. how you can't... They're separate, but they interact, integrated, how your right. mind will move through your brain, your brain responds. And I think it's so important that people recognize the importance of our mind. Almost feel mm-hmm. we live in a society where we kind of exclude the mind and we don't bring yeah. in the body enough. So you make a couple of comments like, you know, we, I thought people don't realize the impact of our thought life. And I thought, yeah, there's another believer in my court. It's one of the things I'm always saying as well is our mm-hmm. thought life is vitally important. So right. I'm really excited you talk about that. Judy from your clinical experience and research, how do people get stuck? And you uh, know, yeah, let's start there. How do people get stuck? Can you give us some examples and yeah. how to's and how it happens? Well,
0: it's really interesting because I think sometimes when people are worrying or when they're ruminating, like thinking mm-hmm. about one concept over and over again, they believe in some way that they're actually trying to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. But it's actually not the best way to approach the problem. And yet it kind of feels like you're being active and so the people mm. end up doing it. They, they end up having all of these self-sabotaging thoughts or they have the same thoughts over and over again. They keep
1: reviewing their mistakes over and over, but it doesn't then translate into action. Okay, now that's really good what you've just said. You've taken the con- concept of rumination mm-hmm. where people think they're doing something because they are, but they're not doing something constructive. Right. They're kind of going around, you know, the tread keep going around and around that little hamster wheel right. as opposed to moving forward. Exactly. And I
0: think that that is something that sometimes people don't realize, you know, sometimes Mm. they think about rumination as something that's completely negative. And well, I think there's a part of rumination that is your body and your mind trying to do a positive thing. It's trying to solve a problem, but it's not getting anywhere because the minute one thought appears, then you're chasing after that thought. Then another Mm. thought appears and you chase after that one again. And there's no place to kind of step back and say, how do I stop this cycle and actually start mm. to do something productive in my real life? So what is one of the first steps to start doing that? How do you do that? Well, I think a lot of times people ignore their thought life. Like you were saying, it's mm. so important to be attentive to your thought yes. life. I think that sometimes thought life is scary for people. You know, it can be very um, ambiguous. You have no idea like, what kind of thoughts can come mm. up if you're meditating or if yes. you're doing anything like really paying attention to what you're thinking. And I think mm. that that is kind of what trips people up because they almost block out some of their thoughts or they avoid thinking about Mm -hmm. it. They have more of an escapist mentality when Mm -hmm. very stressful thoughts come up. But thoughts are not scary. They're just mental events. Mm -hmm. And just because you think something doesn't mean that it's going to come true. Yet we have that idea. Mm -hmm. Like if you think about something terrible that could happen, all of a sudden your emotions are already caught up to that. Your Mm -hmm. fantasy life is running away from you. Mm -hmm. And I want to just... Remind people that thought life is not scary, but the more awareness you can bring to your thoughts, the more you can see whether or not there's certain patterns that happen over and over again. And Mm -hmm. once you recognize those patterns, then you can do something about it.
1: I love that. I love the fact that you've said awareness because that's one of the most important things as a neuroscientist. We see that you know once you become aware of something with your mind, you become aware of what's in your thought life, you bring it into your conscious awareness. That's when you can actually do something. Mm -hmm. You can't do something about something that you've suppressed and pushed down. But the narrative today for mental health is very much... Along the lines of, you have a disease, you know. Just that's the thing you you've just got to deal with it and kind of suppress it, as opposed to face it, deal with it, immerse yourself in it. And I see you talk quite a lot about. About that, of dealing with your stuff, not being scared to face your stuff. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that you know, oftentimes, especially in our society now and our culture in this current time, mm. there's so much fear of any kind of suffering. That you know, there's a lot of social media, mm-hmm. there's a lot of commercials, and just mm. kind of what we see. That it's kind of a propaganda of it should always be the absence of negative emotion. You should I, always so go. So glad that you the, said this. Yeah, mm. that you should always be going after positive emotions, mm-hmm. and yet. How would you recognize something as a positive emotion if you never had the other side?
1: Mm,
0: and the so other and the other piece of it is you don't need the absence of negative emotions to live a well-lived life. And so I think now there's been more and more people mm. talking about this idea of values-based living. Mm. And if we're living according to our highest values, things that we say are the most important to us, mm-hmm. that we want to abide by, that we want to be remembered by. Then the path is not smooth. Like think about any big goal that anybody's ever had—from moving across country to pursue their dream job or getting married, having children. Yeah. There's so many upsides, but there's also challenges. Exactly. And so, if you never wanted to have any negative experiences, you would never get anywhere in life. You
1: wouldn't know what the positive feels like, and would you even no. appreciate the positive? No. You know, and that's—you've you've got to have the balance of both. That's right. Do you think? Do you think Judy? I think from my experience that people are almost scared to, um, like, to deal with the depression, to face that it's okay to be depressed, it's okay to be anxious, it's part of life. It's almost so, as soon as people feel any, you said it yourself earlier on, yeah. as soon as people feel any discomfort, they don't know what to do with it because society is the positive psychology bent and everything's yeah. got to be fine all the time. Do you see that fear in people? Are you also seeing that fear in people? Are being scared of depression, of anxiety, of of feelings yes. of in general. And just, as soon as they feel this, any level of discomfort, it's almost as though oh, it's bad. And yes. you know, well, it's not good. It's telling you something. Right. How yeah. do you feel about
0: it? I mean, that's a that? really great observation that you just made. And I think that you're right. There's more and more people who do become more fearful of that. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes from a couple of places. One is maybe they saw that in their parents or in their upbringing, mm, where even their parents good. are sort mm-hmm. of saying, don't talk about your negative feelings. Mm -hmm. Like they're giving them some type of life lesson that it's not okay to speak about your negative feelings. But then as they grow up into adults, maybe they've internalized that, but it's being reinforced by the culture. When you Mm -hmm. look at social media, for example, everybody's posting their best pictures. They're posting their highlight reel. Mm -hmm. And you think in your mind, because we're social animals Mm -hmm. as a comparison, I don't feel that way. Mm -hmm. My life isn't shiny like that. And then it starts to make you feel bad about yourself. And then you want to run away from that feeling because you don't want to be less than. You don't want to feel like you're not doing as well as somebody else in your life that you're comparing yourself to. And Mm -hmm. I think that that really makes people struggle a lot. But I I think, as you mentioned, if people Mm -hmm. just embrace the fact... That depression and anxiety can just be part of the normal experience. Mm -hmm. It's part of life. Mm -hmm. We have ways to treat it. Oftentimes it's even transient. It's not going to stick around forever. But it's that if we wrestle with that idea more, it actually sticks around longer. Those negative feelings linger more if you
1: keep shoving them away and never dealing with them that's, that's so true that's so good Now I know you still practice clinically and you're still mm-hmm. seeing patients and you have patients in crises and that kind of thing what are um, if, when you're in a patient is in a crisis what are some of the first things that you do in terms of what what are the some of the first things that you do and also how are they getting to those places how do they get there how can they how can you help them get out of those places what are yeah. you doing to manage that Yeah. You know, I think when my clients show up, usually they're ready
0: for change, but they're Mm -hmm. afraid of change too. Mm -hmm. And we kind of have to start by acknowledging that. I mean, it's great that they came to the office. Mm. It's great that they're saying they want help, but change is very hard for most human beings because change means that you're letting go of control. And Mm -hmm. it makes sense from a survivalist perspective that human beings would want as much control as possible because that means that you can predict your environment and that means that you're guaranteeing your own physical and emotional survival. But of course, most things are not what they appear, and most of the times you think you have control, and you really don't anyway. Yeah. And so we have to sort of deal with that idea first, you know, this idea of change. I mean, we talk about this, there's a saying, uh, the devil you know is better than the devil you You don't don't know, know, right? And I think that's why people get into these sort of patterns, whether it's a bad habit or whether it's something that's even more sinister, like maybe they're struggling with drug and alcohol Mm -hmm. abuse. And yet... Somehow those negative outcomes that they keep veering themselves towards is still easier to conceptualize Mm -hmm. than a future where things could be more positive and they could have better relationships because they wouldn't know how to deal with that because they've never dealt with it before. Mm -hmm. So I think the first place to start is acknowledge the fact that change is scary, Mm -hmm. but also recognize that you've already done this pattern before. And you're obviously not satisfied. And it's not working. Yeah. So let's try something new because what do you have to lose? You can go back into yeah. that old cycle anytime because you've already exactly. done it so many times. Yeah.
1: If you practice yeah. it, so you can, you can do it really well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first step you say is to acknowledge that you are, that you need to change. Yes. Before we continue with today's podcast, I want to take a moment to tell you about a product I am so excited about and cannot recommend enough, For Sigmatic. for Sigmatic makes healthy and organic coffees, elixirs, blends and so much more that are not only delicious but also very nutritious and great for brain health. Right now, I'm drinking my favorite product, the coffee mix with lion's mane and chaga, which really helps keep me focused and boosts my mental clarity. And for all of you listening today, you can get 15% off your entire order with the code Doctor Leaf, spelt D-R-L-E-A-F, F as in Freddy, at checkout or go to foursigmatic.com slash DrLeaf. The link will be in the show notes. So what I'd like to ask you now is if you could very simply define self-sabotage, and then I know in your book you've written about six steps mm-hmm. to dealing with self-sabotage. Now, obviously you can't explain in huge detail, but as far as possible in a nice, simple, practical way, can you talk us through the what is self-sabotage in a very simple way? I know you introduced yeah. it, and then the six steps that you've worked on Absolutely. in your research. Yeah, so self-sabotage, put simply, is when people get in their own way
0: despite their best intentions. Could be about anything. It could be like about it. their career. It anyway. mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be about their career. It could be about relationships. It could be about trying to change a bad habit. Mm-hmm. But whatever the case is, you've made a goal to yourself. You've made a commitment to yourself. And somehow, despite your best intentions, you keep having missteps. And why is that? A lot of oh. times people have a lot of shame about that. Mm-hmm. You know, they think, oh, maybe if my willpower was just stronger, or mm-hmm. maybe if I had more motivation, they beat themselves up. But that's not productive because mm-hmm. self sabotage is universally wired. We all. Have the propensity to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's because all human beings have just two main drives, all of us do, and it's to attain rewards and to avoid threat. Mm-hmm. And when those things are in balance, then we're thriving psychologically and physically, we're, yeah. we're, we're doing well. But when those things are out of balance and you start to prioritize avoiding threat, more so than attaining rewards that's when self-sabotage starts to rear its ugly head and avoiding threat isn't just about physical threat because most of us are not battling saber-toothed tigers anymore exactly it's about all the psychological threats Mm. it's about what if i get rejected if i ask Mm. this person out what if i apply for a promotion in this job and somebody laughs at me Mm -hmm. you know It's all of those things that end up holding us back and we forget about the fact that if we were to achieve that award, it would be so rewarding and it would just propel us
1: towards even better outcomes in the future. Fantastic. That's such a. That's really good. Okay, so you speak about your six steps in your book. Can you talk about?
0: Yeah. Well, the first, you know, the first thing that I have people do is look at their underlying drivers for self sabotage, and I have an
1: acronym, and the acronym is LIFE. Yes. Yes. That was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's just an easy mnemonic for people to think about the four major factors that tend to lead people Uh, to mm -hmm. self sabotage. So L stands for low or shaky self concept. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't believe that you deserve better you're not going to do better, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really a very simple way to put that particular acronym together. I, internalized beliefs, Mm -hmm. is things that we learn from childhood, whether that we Mm -hmm. picked it up from our parents or our upbringing or other important adults. If our parents were very anxious and nervous, now we might become like that too. F, as we just discussed, is fear of the unknown or fear of change. And that can affect a lot Mm -hmm. of different individuals. And then finally, E is excessive need for control. So these are people who are very type A, go-getters, perfectionists, Mm -hmm. but sometimes that actually gets in the way because unless everything is perfect and under your control, you don't move forward. And so for anybody out there, they may find themselves being represented by one of those four letters or they might say oh there's more than one
1: that fits me but i think yeah. it's an important piece of beginning to become aware of your thoughts okay so you start then with the life concept mm-hmm. and i think you've got all kinds of um you've got a questionnaire and a quiz yeah, i have a quiz and i have yeah. one on my website too so um people can kind of take it in like two three Perfect. minutes and find out what their life factor is okay so there's the fact that either one or multiple of those and that's yes. the first step that's, that's, well, that's like a pre yeah. first step. Pre first step. So a you kind of figure out what
0: that is. And then you kind of move into the rest of the steps, which of course the first one begins with awareness of your thoughts. So really mm-hmm. understanding where your patterns are. So now that you know your life factors, how do your thoughts work? Like, where are your ruminations? You know, for mm-hmm. some people, it's very black and white thinking. You know, yeah, they make yes. one mistake and it's like the end of the world. Yes, that's it. Or for other people, they do too much social comparisons. It's mm-hmm. always about comparing themselves to somebody else and how they mm-hmm. never measure up. And then for other people, it could be things like catastrophizing. You know, before mm-hmm. you even get there, you're already thinking about all the horrible to things sink. that can happen. Mm-hmm. So once you figure out kind of where your thoughts get stuck, we then talk about ways to address those thoughts. Okay. And so the next step is really about intervening on those thoughts. And I think in traditional mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy, we mm-hmm. talk a lot about thoughts and how we might have to change unhelpful
1: thoughts into more helpful
0: ones, mm-hmm. but sometimes you might not be in the
1: mood to do that because you're, yeah, I'm yeah, going like, to using more of the ACT therapy type mo- model. Yeah, please, yeah exactly. please go ahead and explain yeah, that. I but love it's a that. It's very important point. Yeah. 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 So
0: I talk about these interventions and they're kind of like half CBT and then half ACT. Mm-hmm. So some of it is just traditional CBT where you use a thought log, you take a look at your thoughts you try to change them into more helpful ones. You try to make them balance. You know, like mm-hmm. I use a rule called uh, yes, but. So like, yes, I fell off of my healthy eating today, but I've been doing it really well for the last two weeks. You know, so you kind of yeah, recognize so both it. sides. I like that, yeah. Yeah, but then if that doesn't work, cause sometimes, you know, sometimes you wake up and you're just like, I just can't get out of this negative mode today. And even if I write a helpful thought, I'm not going to believe in it. And that's when ACT is so important, which is really Mm -hmm. de-emphasizing the impact that these negative thoughts can have on you. Mm -hmm. So ACT is really about sort of understanding that all thoughts are just a mental event. Mm -hmm. And I have one really quick technique where you basically just label the thought as such. So if you have a thought like, I'm never going to reach my goal, then just putting a clause in front of it like, I'm having the thought that I'm never going to reach my goal, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, it doesn't feel like it's definitely going to happen anymore. It's more just labeled. A, it's
1: it. more just a, and you've almost ex, you know you've changed its context, haven't you? Instead yes. of it being me in this moment now, you kind of standing back and acknowledging it, saying you're having that thought, but it's not who you are at the moment. Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly.
0: And mm-hmm. I think that that is the key difference between that type of technique versus a
1: changing a thought which can put a lot of pressure on the person yeah. because if they can't do it then like, what's wrong with me right and then that makes them feel even worse, even about, worse themselves. about themselves exactly yeah. so by using them more so the act is going more into it's sort of almost embracing it i don't feel yeah. good in that moment but that's okay you just accept the thought as what it is mm-hmm. but like you said you change the context of the
0: thought so the thought itself is the same it's still there mm-hmm. but you've changed the context by labeling it as a thought that you're having a thought separate from you right sometimes when we have thoughts mm-hmm. it feels very internal mm. to ourselves it feels like it is us it feels exactly. like it defines us and it's really about separating that like i'm yeah. having a thought that dot 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 as it makes us to, saw something else it's yeah, external to you
1: as opposed to i am or this is who i am because i found when i was practicing clinically mm-hmm. as well that when people get stuck in that now moment of they just completely immerse themselves in all those feelings they just mm-hmm. can't get beyond it. that's when they, they get stuck in right. the depression and the anxiety and yes. those are manifesting whereas what you're saying is which, is, which sounds like you're saying the same thing mm-hmm. a lot where if you just embrace and allow yourself to experience that mm-hmm. people aren't giving themselves permission literally to experience that because the world's messages through social media as you've said and yeah. just through the general narrative of mental health is yeah. and positive psychology where there's good and bad in mm-hmm. that um, but from the bad side, we've got this whole thing. Well, what's wrong with you? you know, right. There's something between. You know, there's something wrong with you. That you. Why can't you get through this? Or just apply this little quick trick, and you should be through that. And yeah. there's something wrong with you if you're feeling sad. Yes. And that's really bad because that's not normal. Right. It's normal to. Feel depressed or anxious or whatever, to have to to take time sometimes to process through that. Yeah, and to have those ups and downs—that it doesn't mean anything
0: bad about your own mental wellness, no, or your value system, yes, or or your your identity. Yes, absolutely. mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that I talk to a lot of people about is grief, because I think grief Mm, sometimes can be a very complicated emotion. And it can sometimes lead people to self-sabotage, you know, especially in ways where they start to pick up bad habits. So people, sometimes dealing with grief, they'll find that they're drinking more than usual, or Mm. they're stuffing their feelings away and eating a lot of junk food. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, you know, you you when people are afraid of grief, it makes sense because it's a very difficult emotion. You never know when it's going to come exactly. up. Exactly. Sometimes you're angry. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're really sad and mm-hmm. you have no idea. You know, you were just fine five minutes ago. Yeah. All of a sudden you got a reminder or something mm-hmm. and you're getting really sad. But I always tell people to embrace grief. It's that idea of that act model again, where, you know, the grief just shows you how much you've loved the person that was gone. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really just shows you how beautiful that love was and mm-hmm. how great that relationship mm-hmm. was. And so, you know, when I first lost my grandmother, who was like a second mother to me, mm-hmm. um, I was happy when I cried from time to time for her. I still am because it makes me realize how much I still love her. You know, it's almost like I'm honoring her Mm. by being sad, right? So it's like changing the narrative of what those negative feelings are and Mm. not even labeling them as negative,
1: but thinking about them as a productive way to express yourself. Okay, I love that. So if someone now who's listening to this podcast has just lost someone and they're in a state of grief, what can they do now? What is the exact thing they could do right at this moment
0: well I think a lot of it is about distress tolerance you know it's like when you have those negative emotions how do you ride that wave Yes, and that's good. It's hard for people because, again, you try to push away the negative feeling. You're like, well, if I was stronger, I wouldn't still be sad. It's already been a year. Mm-hmm. You know, you have all of these different things that you tell yourself. And and it's really about imagining emotions like waves in the ocean. Like they mm-hmm. come and they go. And if you ride them, then you're in control of them. But if mm-hmm. you're fighting them and you're trying to go against them, and you're trying to push mm-hmm. them away. You're just going to get towed under. Right. And so it's idea mm-hmm. of recognizing that emotions are fleeting and if you just ride the wave they'll actually pass the negative emotions will actually pass a lot sooner Mm -hmm. than if you're fighting them and then the other thing that i also think is very helpful for distress tolerance is also just to do the opposite of how you feel sometimes people forget Mm -hmm. that that actually does help you know there's a lot of research that shows that even when you're not in a good mood, if you force yourself to smile mm-hmm. or force yourself to half-smile, mm-hmm. it actually does improve how you feel. Mm-hmm. And so remembering that when you think about that cognitive behavioral mm-hmm. model, you know, your thoughts can drive your feelings mm-hmm. and then their feelings can drive behaviors, but it can go the opposite way it too. Again,
1: that's not a fixed thing. Yeah. yeah. That's almost too simplistic, isn't it? If you think of it, it's much more complex. That's right. So and they're some, all interrelated. So when they're riding that wave, what do you? how do you help them manage riding that wave? So i People they, can get lost and drowned in the right. World. It, it gets really mm-hmm.
0: difficult, and I think that you know. Oftentimes, I try to get them to imagine and personify the feeling as an object or a person. Yes, I
1: read that in, in your work, and I love that.
0: Yeah, I think it's helpful mm-hmm. only because, um, well, there's a lot of research now that shows yes, that, that it's is helpful, lots. which mm-hmm. is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, there was a study that came out of China where um, they took some the inspiration from the movie Inside Out. Yes, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I to too. Yeah. And I and uh, they basically told all of their participants imagine a negative emotion as a person a character Mm -hmm. like give Mm -hmm. them features give them a face uh, give them a tone of voice Mm -hmm. and that those individuals compared to the other group which were just to imagine emotions as a regular emotion no no other descriptors um, they ended up feeling those negative emotions less intensely so the people who imagine them as people
1: actually felt the negative emotions in a less stressful way. Even And it seems to be even more powerful than speaking it because speak, you can speak them out. You can speak yeah. them out specifically. Yes. Or you can speak them out specifically and you can actually imagine them as a, as you say, a person or even an object. Yes, absolutely. And you find that works with, has that helped your clients in absolutely in dealing with grief or in dealing with all kinds of different All kinds of things. Yeah, I think a lot of it is about um,
0: sort of a mindfulness exercise I like to do with my clients. Having them take that negative emotion imagine taking that negative emotion out of their body and onto mm. the table and examining it and
1: giving it features you know it's so almost like literally physically doing that yes. take that out of you and put that what about grief would that work for grief as well if people are feeling unbearably weighed down mm-hmm. i'll give you an example just recently i was doing a conference and one lady came up to me at the book signing and she was mm-hmm. wearing a heart monitor and it was because she had just lost her husband i think it was honestly a couple of weeks prior to this conference Mm -hmm. and it was part of what she does so she had to be there Mm. and she said she's had to wear the heart monitor because she's literally you know the situation where you can literally die from grief where her heart she was experiencing tachycardia and all kinds of things Mm -hmm. and someone you know I I was talking through her talking to her just about the grief. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking something like, because I told her as well, imagine that, you know, take that and put that out there and see see that person. You know, when I read you that you do that too, I was really excited because she said no one had ever told her that. Uh Everyone had told her, okay, the grief is there time will heal you know the worst thing you can right. say to people time will heal <laughs> yeah. you'll get over it you never get over grief and no. you never time never heals but it's somehow true. you've got to learn to manage it Yeah. so it's the coping strategy in the moment and that's what she was asking for what do i do now right now today yes. in this moment i'm sitting here i'm in this great conference i'm very excited but to hear this but i'm i'm, I'm also dying inside and mm-hmm. i've i've You know, like what would you tell someone like that in that particular moment if someone came up to you that situation? You
0: know, I think aside from some of the things that we've been talking about, like, okay, there's like the riding the wave, there's like taking it out and giving it descriptors so that you can really feel like it's physical and outside of you because even the Grand Canyon, which is huge, has physical boundaries. So when something is taken out of your body and it's a physical world thing, it feels more manageable than when it's inside and totally amorphous and you have no idea how long it's going to go on for. But the other piece of this, of course, is the values based living mm. because when people have grief or any kind of negative emotion, oftentimes you hear people say things like, well, when I'm not depressed anymore, then I'll go find a job. Mm, yes. When I'm not depressed more, then I'll hang out with my family. It's going to be something else in the meantime. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's all about, you know, this whole act philosophy is about even when you're in the middle of stress and distress and negative feelings, you can still do the
1: things that are important to you. You don't have to wait for that. I love that. I love yeah. that, that philosophy. It's yeah. fantastic.
0: I love it too because really mm. then the improvement of your emotion is actually a
1: byproduct of exactly. you living a values-based life. So if you life. put yourself away from community when you're feeling depressed, it's not going to make you feel better. And even if you stay yeah. depressed in amongst your family or your friends, at least, you'll start feeling better. That's what the research is showing and, yeah. and also helping people. That's that's, And I'm sure you've, you've yes. read the research about how you can improve your your own healing by a factor of, I think it's up to 68% when you reach out mm-hmm. and help others in your worst place.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think that sometimes people, again, you know, when you become very, very intensely depressed or anxious or, or in the middle of grief or any kind of negative emotion, you become... Self-centered in a way, it's not self-centered mm. in a selfish way, but it's just you're yes. so focused on your own suffering exactly. that it's very hard for you to have the bigger context yeah. and get that feeling of meaningfulness and something bigger than yourself like and belonging to something. Mm. All of that pulls you out of those negative emotions, and so it's probably the last thing that people want to do when they're not feeling good. But connecting with a community, doing something nice for somebody,
1: mm-hmm. all of those things help you lift out of that dark cloud. What is, like, what is, if someone is in that, they, have, they they don't even want to get out of bed. I mean, they literally mm-hmm. just want to give up. They don't want to live anymore. They just, what is something that you could tell them and also their families? How do you help a family, mm-hmm. help a loved one? So let's start with, what would you tell that person who's really, really in a bad place? They mm-hmm. just They just don't want to carry on. They don't have the energy. Start with that, and then we'll talk about the family, how we can.
0: Well, I think when people are feeling that bad, they're so easily overwhelmed and they think Mm. too far ahead almost. Mm, That's good. And it's really about taking things one step at a time. Cause sometimes they'll say, well, it's overwhelming to even think about getting dressed Mm. and it's like, okay, but let's not think about that just Mm -hmm. yet. What's the first thing that you have to do? Do you just have to sit up in bed and do that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now what's the next thing that you have to do? People take themselves too far down. You know, a lot of times people become Mm -hmm. overwhelmed because they're thinking, Oh, and then I've got like five other things that I have to do, and I haven't cleaned my house, and then all of a sudden they just and all bed the, the expectations
1: that other people have of them that can also it's be very stressful time. because they don't want to cause pain to the people that mm-hmm. they love either.
0: And so I just say, take it one step at a time, and then once you
1: finish that step, then ask yourself what the next step is. But you don't mm-hmm. have to plan out your and those whole are day. Ti- tiny steps, like even mm-hmm. go to the restroom, mm-hmm. clean your mm-hmm. teeth, you know, maybe mm-hmm. you walk to that next room or something. So it's a small those tiny, very tiny steps. steps, and then to reward yourself in terms of maybe then sit down and relax a little bit more, watch TV yeah. or something like that. Is it? Yeah,
0: exactly. Just, oh. It's like take it one step at a time and just do what's needed in the moment. You know, that's mm-hmm. really important too. Sometimes people think, oh, I have a million other projects I haven't finished. Mm. That's not the time for that right that's now. That's
1: sabotaging, isn't it? Yeah. That's very sabotaging. Yeah, people mm-hmm.
0: think like too globally when they don't need to, mm-hmm. when they can really take life moment by moment. And so that's where I tell people who are suffering is like, what's the next step? You don't have to think five ten steps down the line, I right love that. And with mm-hmm. families, I always try to educate the families that when somebody is feeling bad, it's going to be hard for you to reach out to them because they're going to push you away.
1: Mm. And sometimes
0: you hear that. you know people get depressed and then they become more and more isolated because they keep saying no to visitors. They get cranky mm. when people reach out and then people stop reaching out mm, and it's the worst thing that's the worst thing and you know it's interesting because there's a lot of research that's come out of international studies that show that countries that are more collectivistic mm, they have yes. lower relapse rates for exactly. schizophrenia mm. major depression bipolar disorder exactly. why because mm. you're already living in that community exactly and people are all around you all the exactly. time and they're
1: like hey you're not doing they're so well today. yeah we're gonna
0: walk you out you know we're gonna take you around the park yeah. and We
1: don't do that quite as much in America. No, we don't. Have you seen that study that came out of Berkeley? You probably have read the study where they interviewed the Japanese, they went to Japan, interviewed a lot of people in Japan, and Mm -hmm. then they interviewed them in America, and the question they they asked them was, what is the most important thing for you as a person? Yes. And in Japan, which is much more collectivistic and community-focused, their answer was to be... An important part of community to contribute yeah. to community yeah. and to be part of. So, it was all the focus was on that, on the community. Mm-hmm. In America, it was my passion, my goals, my vision, yes. me, myself and I. You know, it led to a whole lot of other studies, and that just comes back to our, we're not meant to be individuals, we're not meant to just be focusing on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we also need each other to help us through, which is what you, you know, when it comes to the family. Yes. When people say, I don't want help, what mm-hmm. they're actually saying is, I do want help. Is that not? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Clear? I mean, community is so huge. Mm-hmm. And I think also in more westernized countries where there's more individualistic tendencies, oh. this idea of an identified self becomes more and more of a problem. Mm. You know, again, if you don't reach a goal, then it's all your fault. You know, then you beat up on yourself. You know, um, any emotion, any negative thought you have is all about you and all of your mm-hmm. deficiencies. Whereas when you live in a community and that's your value... There's so many different ways to feel better when you're having a bad day, because it's not just about what you accomplish that day as an individual or who you are Mm. in terms of a personality trait. It's about what role are you serving your community? Like, are you still a good mom? Are you still a good friend? Are you still a good teacher? All of those things are Mm. equally important. And I do think that we can take some things from collectivistic cultures that can really help with our own mental wellness.
1: Right now, I am recording this podcast on my phone while traveling between conferences in multiple different cities. Luckily, I have one of my favorite snacks to help keep me fueled and focused, super fat nut butters. These nut butters are certified keto and paleo, and the healthy plant fats support sustained levels of energy, cognition, and mental clarity. The main ingredient, macadamia nuts, are scientifically proven to help speed up fat metabolism Superfat nut pouches come in five different and delicious flavors and are perfect for kids' lunches, office snacks, trail snacks, and travel snacks. My personal favorite flavor is the Nitro Coffee MCT. Superfat is offering a special discount just for my listeners. Get 15% off your order when you use the code Dr. Leaf at checkout just go to superfat.com and use the code drleaf at checkout that's d-r-l-e-a-f This episode is brought to you by Juve, an at-home red light therapy device. Red light therapy is a powerful, non-invasive treatment which delivers natural wavelengths of light to your skin and cells. Numerous studies have shown red light therapy can be an effective modality that we can use to help heal and improve our mental, cognitive, and physical health. It's one of the best things I recommend for optimal health and an integral part of my self-care routine. Head over to juve.com slash DrLeaf, that's J. O O V V forward slash D R L E A F, and if you use the code Doctor Leaf at checkout, you'll get a nice bonus gift with your purchase. Judy, this is such this is, this is brilliant. I love what you're saying. Can we come back to your six steps? On I know you've spoken about two. Can you just very briefly recap those two and just walk us through the other four very briefly? Obviously, people can get your book and they can mm-hmm. get the detail in your book. If you, if you could do that
0: yeah absolutely so the first couple of steps you know before we even do that we dive into the life factors we understand yes. which of those are actually driving our self-sabotage I because everybody's mm-hmm. is different then the first step is identifying your thought triggers mm-hmm. you know really understanding what are the thought patterns that you keep getting into that lead you to self-sabotaging behaviors and the second step is addressing those thought triggers yes. and so yes. one way is those cognitive behavioral therapy techniques where you start to try to develop more helpful thoughts mm-hmm. but the other way is really about dealing with the thoughts a Different context. So the thoughts don't yeah. have to change, but it's that act idea of labeling the thought as what it is and moving on and not letting it impact your life as much. Mm-hmm. Then we move into the ABCs. And this is, of course, the antecedents, behaviors, and consequences. Really getting mm-hmm. people to understand that there's a sequence of things that happen. You get triggered. It could be thoughts, but it could be other things. It could mm-hmm. be a memory. It could be a certain environment. It could be about being around a certain person. It could be a certain time of day. For example, snacking. Most people do terrible Mm -hmm. snacking at night, not in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. So you find out what your antecedents or triggers are, not just thoughts, but everything else in your environment. And then you find out what the behaviors are that it leads to and the consequences that you're trying to change. Mm -hmm. And once you understand that behavioral chain, then you can start to apply strategies to use replacement behaviors, which is step four. So when Mm -hmm. people have these self-sabotaging behaviors, how do you change it? Well, you identify behaviors that you can replace that would be more helpful and lead you to the things that you really want. Mm -hmm. And then step five is all about really understanding your motivation and how to actually build from your motivation to actually have the willpower that you say you don't have. Mm -hmm. And this is where we start to get into some of the values work because people don't realize that like sometimes what they're talking about is motivation It's just because their goals are misaligned with their values.
1: Mm. And so
0: it's really about finding out exactly what's motivating you from a values perspective rather than goals. So it really should start with your values first. And then your goals Mm. should come second and should feed into your values. Give me some examples
1: of of, of that, of values. Yeah, so values values would be
0: things that you want to pursue. um, Mm -hmm. And they're not things that you can check off. So you can check off a 5K, you can check off running every single day Mm -hmm. but you can't check off the value of health right Mm. because you're not going to say oh i've had enough health i'm done now yes (laughs) exactly but all of those types of goals feed into the value of health Mm. and you can say that you want to spend more time with your family maybe you want to say something like oh i want to call my mom every day Mm -hmm. but that's a goal but what is that value that's superseding that Mm. goal is it that you care about family is it that you care about community is it because mm. you care about, you know, strong relationships? You know, you want to find whatever values are really nurturing you and things that you really want your life to stand for. Mm. And then the goal should come from that. And people sometimes, like, they'll put a goal up because their friend has the same goal or they look on social media and somebody else is doing some 30-day challenge they want to yeah, do it too. Okay.
1: But, like, where is that coming from? Where is, is it that really actually from? important to you personally? Because you're not going to continue. There's no sustainability if you don't have that value established. Exactly. So people should ask themselves that question very, very deeply before they just dive in.
0: Yeah, and in my book, I actually have a values card sort, which is also downloadable from my website, where if you're not sure about values-based work, you can actually do this card sort to figure out what, what are the most important
1: values to you. It's a card
0: sort, so it's basically oh, like a little game that you play. It's almost fantastic. like a little solitaire game that you play where you sort your values from top to bottom so that you can really oh, understand really where your top good.
1: values are. Do you find a lot of your uh, your clients in your practice battle to sort their values? Is this a general problem in this day and age? I do,
0: because I think we're so focused on goals that when I start to talk to people about Mm. values, they're like, I don't know what my values are, really. You know, they're like, we haven't thought about that in a long time. So the values Mm. card store is just an easy way. It's a tangible way for them to kind of be able to figure Uh, that out. Because sometimes it's been years before they've even asked themselves, like, what's truly important to me on the inside? I
1: love that. And you know, that used to be very much the philosophy 60 years ago, but this, yeah. in this social media age and our extrinsically extrinsically driven society—it's all about the external reward and getting it in, yes. isn't it? Yes. So the values have almost shifted to an right. extrinsic versus intrinsic. If I'm hearing you correctly, this card sorting game yes. is just a very simple way of actually getting people to look at what is your real intrinsic driver, yeah. which then leads to that motivation. Exactly. Which is then going to lead to sustainability for the changes that they need to make.
0: That's absolutely right. You know, motivation comes from within. It doesn't come just from looking at somebody else's goals and seeing how they did it. You know, it's really (laughs) about you. And really, this is not necessarily a new philosophy because it's thousands of years old, right? Plato and Aristotle talk about this. But then we lost our way
1: at some point. Technologically-wise, I think there's been so much good and so much bad. But I think it's also in, in terms of why this has changed. I think it could be, and I'd love to know your opinion, Something to do with maybe how we become such a reductionistic society, which yeah. shifted about 60 years ago. And we became so focused on the physical and the external, we forgot about those yeah. those spiritual values, which shifted a lot. Even the research became so like evidence-based, which is good to have evidence-based yeah. research. But you've got evidence-based research that looks at numbers as opposed to the individual person. Yes. Which is also research. I know. And I've done a lot of my research in the field, in South Africa, in this country, working with people. And I think you've done a lot of similar kind of research directly with people. There isn't one pattern. No. Every human's going to react individually. That's right. And you
0: know what? I think mm -hmm. there is a shift. It's almost like... We overcorrected at some point, mm. and everything became so evidence based and numbers driven yes, that we forgot about the, person. the importance about the person, mm-hmm. the
1: qualitative
0: research, yes. the experiential research, yes. all of which is equally was valuable. Of, exactly. Because it gives you the,
1: the context. Exactly. It was pushed aside for a season, and I see there's a move back towards that. So, yeah. where we can, and essentially, simplistically, when we talk about qualitative research, just for the listeners, we're talking about looking at the individual in their individual context, their story of their life. Not trying to say you just one of you know you you don't follow the bell curve yes exactly which tells nothing tells you nothing really about what's going on in your life. Yeah, I always found it so
0: interesting to read about you know um, anthropological research right where it's all experiential, Mm -hmm. it's all qualitative, and then they write a whole book about you know their year living with the Inuits. You know exactly. I love that kind of research, but I think at some point people thought that that wasn't as important, and I think that's kind of that's a really good analogy to values and goals. Goals yes. are very numbers driven. It's very, very much. much like, yes, no. Did I do this? Check it off. Values are not as easily defined like no. that. It's the whole picture. Mm. And you're never going to be done living a value if it's really important to you. I mean, if you're, one of your values is honesty, are you ever going to be done living that value? Mm-hmm. Probably not. And if that is truly one of your values, do you think that's going to be an easy life? No, because some people will not want you to be honest with them. You might get into fights and arguments with people. You might have very negative feelings as a result of you ascribing to your honesty. Exactly, exactly. So you can't be afraid of it. And that's why you have to get
1: back into your values so that you can live from an authentic place. Oh, I love that. I love that. I think honesty, authenticity is what's... I don't think it's intentionally gone missing but I think it's happened when you remove that whole sort of almost spiritual side of us that whole qualitative side which has happened a lot
0: people are afraid of constructive criticism it feels like you know Mm. as a professor right now at my university I feel like people when they hear constructive criticism they immediately think oh this reflects badly on me they become defensive as opposed to wow, this constructive criticism can help me improve. It's a process, right?
1: Mm. People are really
0: afraid sometimes of hearing negative things now, which I think is Mm. what's driving our society to feel like we have to pander sometimes or always Mm. say something nice.
1: But But it's come from a lot of the sort of positive psychology move. Isn't that weird? Because it was such a good idea at first. Yes, it was. And it did do so well and it did start shifting. But it's, it's now it's gone the other way where people don't know how to grow and you can't grow unless you have positive criticism I know. and that's a huge part don't you think that also that, that can also make people feel depressed because you you know instinctively you need to grow yeah but if you're not going to learn from what people say to you or learn from your experiences if you're too, if you're too scared to experience life you yeah. can't grow and that can add to yeah. those feelings of inadequacy and And they attach attached to your values as well or distort your values, distort your perceptions.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that kind of goes back and drives life, right? The low self-esteem that comes from that, the fear of change or the unknown. And I see this problem sometimes in some parents too, where Mm. parents are approaching their children like little porcelain dolls Mm. and they don't even allow them to stumble because they're afraid Mm. of how they might deal with that. But where does resilience come from? Resilience comes from experiencing challenges, making your way through them, exactly. and looking back and saying, I did that. Exactly. I survived that, so I can survive other things.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's almost like we have to get used to ourselves and help our children get used to almost like high levels of stress in a safe environment. So when you go out there in life, if you're used to an 11 level of stress, you can get you can deal with a level 5. But we're not yeah. even letting our kids get to a level 1 right? because of that. So when they get out there, they collapse at the first the first challenge and so you're not
0: actually setting them up for life and for success and you know i think a lot of this and the the big message in my book is about psychoeducation and setting expectations you know speak about that that's very interesting yeah because you can't affect you can't affect positive change in yourself or other people if you don't expect to stumble along the way you know Mm -hmm. people have said this before that failure is the mother of success you should just expect that you're going to fail But why does failure have to be a bad thing? You know, failure gets you to the next step.
1: Exactly. It's a a great thing. It's a learning experience. Yeah.
0: And I think sometimes people, they're Mm. not prepared for that. So then when they make a mistake, they beat themselves up. And then they think that that's going to motivate themselves. But no, the more you beat yourself up and that negative self-talk is just going to feed into your self-concept. It's going to make you feel even less efficacious. And then the next time you have another goal, you're just going to give up before you even start. Before you've
1: even started. Are you Mm -hmm. seeing that pattern in any specific age group or is it across the board?
0: I do think that it's generally across the board, although I see it more in like our younger people right now. Mm -hmm. So I would say that, you know, of course, it's not every single younger person, Mm -hmm. but I do see it being more common Mm -hmm. in the generation that's growing up right now in grade school, in high school, Mm -hmm. and then the 20s and 30s, you know, sort of the people who are in their 20s 30s having a lot of this big issue and I'm sure you've seen this too when you're practicing and in your interviews the failure to launch syndrome Mm. that wasn't really a thing 10 Mm. to 20 years ago Mm. this idea of a 30-year-old man who like can't move out of the house or get a job and Mm. hasn't finished college yet this idea of failure to launch I don't remember this being a concept
1: 20, 30 years no, ago. No, no, definitely But it's a not. big problem now. It is. It's a, it is a huge problem. Speak a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, you know, I think the failure to launch syndrome is definitely a type of self-sabotage. Mm. And I think, again, it's it comes from a place of maybe, and this is not every single case, but it comes from a place of having maybe some codependent family members who mm. every time you stumbled, they went and saved you. So you never learned you never the skills learned, for
1: yourself. You never got to even level three of stress- management yeah. you were you were like at zero
0: yes exactly okay. and so i think no now, skills yeah and now as a 30 something year old you see everybody else around you having jobs moving out of the house and you're not able to do it but it's this negative cycle because every time you try to do something and then you encounter a hardship someone in your family is coming and wrapping you back into their arms and saying mm. don't worry i'll take care of you i'll i'll pay your next month's rent i'll pay for your groceries like don't worry you don't need to get a job mm. we can wait another two months So then you never get out of that pattern. And so in some ways, it's almost like the codependency of people who deal with people with substance issues. Yes, I wanted to ask you, that was my next
1: question, a little bit about addiction, and because you've got an interesting take as well around that. Yeah, because I think addiction
0: in many ways, too, is a type of self-sabotage that's Mm -hmm. driven by the life factors. A lot of times people fall into the same patterns of addiction because they're fear of change. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they fall into that pattern because they have a lot of negative thoughts about themselves Mm -hmm. and they have a very low self-concept. So when you have a low self-concept, you're not going to be good to yourself. You're going mm. to do destructive things to yourself, like mm. utilize alcohol and drugs when you know that it's to numb it, for you. And to
1: numb it. Yes, numb the-
0: absolutely. And I also find that a lot of people with addiction issues, there was internalized beliefs about the role of alcohol and substances that perhaps mm. they learned from a parent that that's a way to solve or escape problems. And, of course, mm. the problems never really go away. You no. actually end up having more problems exactly. as a result of your addiction. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that is... Goes back to some of our earlier points of people trying to escape a negative emotion. Yes. If we weren't afraid of dealing with negative exactly. emotions, we would have less addiction. Exactly. Because so
1: much of that is about the escape. That's true. And that, that leads to the whole thing is that you're not the whole concept of once an addict always an addict is just not the truth. because yeah, it's not. It's just that's a, so self defeating too. It, I hate totally, that. Totally, I hate it too. I'm so <laughs> glad. And you know, it's a cup. I've done a few interviews where you have spoken about this with various different doctors in the field, and I'm so happy to see that there's a shift away from this. For yes. years, it's been dominating that once an addict, always an addict, and you've got to learn to live with these things. You know, it's it's right. such a defeatist, it's such a biological framework, isn't it? And yes. It's kind of key. It's so like limiting for the person. Yes. What do you think about the whole sort of bio- medicalizing misery and
0: you know, pathologizing
1: yes. suffering? Yeah. What do you think about that? Because in your book, you appear to address... Yeah, that to a certain extent.
0: You know, I think it's a little bit like the positive psychology movement, where at one point we were trying to make everything biological because then it felt like a true science. Yes, yes. It felt like it can be tangible and okay. Mm-hmm. We're going to line ourselves with the medical profession. Mm-hmm. But have I our think takes steps. And, yeah, mm, yeah. But them I, off and, right, but mm-hmm. I think that it got turned on its head at some point because. At first, it really was helpful just so that the person doesn't keep blaming themselves. But then it became this issue of, well, then if it's biological, I can't do anything about it. And it takes away their confidence, their Mm self-efficacy, their ability to see that it's changeable. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that simple, obviously. You know, Mm. nothing is that simple. You can't just identify it as a biological problem that can never be changed. And also biology can be changed. And that's what's amazing about yeah. you know us human beings is that there is so much that you can do at any point in life to build resilience and to change your path. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, so my whole thing about the biomedical model is that it served a role, but people bought into it in a way that became harmful.
1: Mm, it kind of dip- yeah. tipped on the other side, didn't it? Instead of bringing yeah. balance, it became all about that physical reductionistic mm-hmm classical yes. kind of biomedical model everything's biological yeah to and i see the shift like you were saying
0: talking mm. to doctors i'm sure you've noticed that a lot of physicians who were you know trained in traditional medical yeah. programs are now saying but we see see a role for holistic health. Like we well, they, see the role. Yeah. For well, that.
1: they've been put under so much pressure to everyone. Ninety percent of prescriptions are coming from doctors when it comes to mental health, but they have no yeah. training. I train physicians, and yeah. they don't. They don't. They don't have training in mental they health. They don't know what because. But the, they're seen as the mental health experts. You know, you've got to be a medical doctor, right. even more so than someone like yourself or myself, who have spent our entire career studying mind. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a. That's that shift of the biomedical, and the doctors are under pressure. I mean, want doctor is one physician a day commit suicide right? and it's, mm. uh, due to a multiplicity of factors. But we have to look at mental health differently, not as just this biological thing. Yeah. So when you talk about sabotaging thoughts, you've really brought that mind component in. You've mm-hmm. really brought that, and you've brought the person back into the situation. Right. You're not telling the person you're sabotaging thoughts because you've got a broken brain. No. You're actually telling someone that, hey, these are thoughts that are... Like it's, it's it's thoughts that are doing what they shouldn't be doing, and you right. can actually do something. You can use your thinking yeah. to change your thinking. Right. I was involved in some of the first neuroplasticity research back in the eighties with traumatic brain injuries and mind brain changes and things, oh. and it and that's what I've spent my whole career researching the mind brain and how you directed neuroplasticity mm-hmm. and. You know, so when I read your work about sabotaging thoughts, it's very exciting because you are really showing people how to change, use their brain, mind, sorry, use the mind Mm -hmm. to actually change the structure of the brain. Yes. That's exactly that's what we're trying to people. do. Yeah. yeah,
0: because again, people think about biology as um totally unchangeable, and yeah, we've exactly. seen research, right? Like genetics people, change. Genetics change. You change over the course of your life. You know, when people have PTSD, for example, we find that sometimes their amygdalas are enlarged. You know, that yes, actually, yes, it's, it's devoting that, basically more of the brain to processing. Whatever you think about
1: the most will grow. Yeah, and
0: mm-hmm. then of course, once people have gone through PTSD treatment the amygdala shrinks back down exactly. to a normal size. And so, yes, your thoughts and your patterns and how you behave and how you choose to live your life can actually change the actual biology, the actual structures of the brain. Yeah. I think that is powerful because people don't realize that. They think, no, oh, they don't. well, once I've already had this biological injury or whatever they want to call they think it, that's it, it's
1: done, yeah. I'm done. They've almost equated um, things like depression with things like cancer, and mm-hmm. it feels uncontrollable. Yes. I've just finished a clinical trial now where we, 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 look, we just there's many different aspects to that we were using QEEGs, and we mm. saw that when you give people mind management, which is pretty much yeah. how to manage those sabotaging those thoughts that are sabotaging you over a period of time, over nine weeks, we saw people that had um, the enlarged amygdalas, we had you know, yes. lower prefrontal cortex activity, we had like uh, um, hype activity in the wrong you know, parts of the brain that you don't want, too much high mm-hmm. beta activity. Mm-hmm. And we saw just giving mind management skills, someone who was totally depressed, not sleeping, mm-hmm. over a period of nine weeks with mind management, the depression literally lifted. And the mm-hmm. sleeping, but it wasn't just some magic pill. It was the process of finding out the root cause. And you've expressed yes. this so beautifully with your, you know, the life values, the, the life process, mm-hmm. your acronym, and then going, going through the process of defining your values and yeah. finding the cause. It's at work. So yeah. my point of this statement is, it's a lot of work. Yes. Do you find people resist the amount of work involved in the mind?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think they do. And I think sometimes people are just always looking for that magic bullet. Mm. And I start mm. my book by saying, sorry, if that's what you're looking for. It's this not is the act. wrong book. It's the wrong book, you know. And, and actually, I don't think anybody can promise that to you. And if they did, they would be frauds. because
1: but they have been. It
0: takes work.
1: Taking the tablet, taking the little yeah. 10 steps, yeah.
0: Yes, and you know, it's never that easy because mm-hmm. there, were, there was time that it took. For you to establish these Mm -hmm. bad behaviors Mm -hmm. or things that you want to change. So it's going to take time for you to shift. But the powerful thing is if you take the time to do it, it will shift. Everybody Mm -hmm. is capable of change at any age.
1: Exactly. That's beautiful. Say that that again. That's so good.
0: (laughs) People, everybody is capable of change at any Any age. age. And we see that even in the brain, right? When people think, okay, Mm -hmm. well, my brain is aging. I've had a traumatic brain injury. It's not going to recover. And yet you even find, yes, of course, as you get older, your brain is a little less plastic. But there
1: is still change. But it just, it's a different kind change. of plasticity, because there's sort okay. of a lot of, yeah, you can still, no matter what your age. I think my oldest patient was an 83 year old who, 78 mm-hmm. year old. Who wanted to become? a couldn't fly anymore. as a pilot, and wanted to become a, an accountant. And he studied at 84. He qualified as an accountant. Wow! You know, and, and that was so. It's you. You. I've had patients that have mm-hmm. got holes literally so much brain damage that yeah. they had been written off as vegetables, getting university degrees. I mean, those yeah. are quite extreme, right? But I know you've probably seen the same thing: people that feel completely hopeless and then going to a point mm-hmm. where. What is the factor that you have seen that where you see those kind of changes, where people were, came to you in a complete, maybe they were cutting themselves, maybe they were in a yeah. point where they were just like eating disorders and just the mm-hmm. dep- whatever, all those emotional and physical mm-hmm. warning signals, and then there's this transformation and you start seeing the progress. Yeah. What is the key? What's the key that you have seen in that transformation? I think the
0: key really is all in the mind, and that they finally made the shift of taking the limits off of their own mind okay you know, that's
1: brilliant please say yeah. that again they take, need the, to hear this.
0: <laughs> they take the limits off of their own mind because the mind mm. is limitless Love it. but oh. you put that limit on yourself exactly. at some point whether it's with the life factors or something else you know you're putting that limit on i mm. can't do this my parents didn't get to do this i'm too afraid of change it's mm. too it's too uh late for me i'm already in my 50s i'm not going to mm. change now those are limits that you put on your and own And that's mind. mind
1: work. Those are mind limits. You're doing that with your mind. Yeah, it's you not said, your brain. It's your no, mind. your brain just does what your mind tells it to do. Yeah, exactly. So that, that, I love the fact that you said that that's mind. Because yeah. there's so many people that are going through tremendous physical pain. Mm-hmm. And it's a, you know, it feeds back. Obviously, if you're in a lot of pain, it's going back into your mind. And those people very often will insist that this is not something that they have any control over. Right. right. And yes, you can have it. You know, you can have an issue around obviously the physical that happens, but you've still got your mind that you can use to help manage that process.
0: Exactly. I don't
1: know if you find any, if you've worked with anything like that in your practice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I
0: think that people sometimes forget that that's a feedback loop, you know, mm, they neglect mm. to think about it that way. And yeah. everything is interrelated. But that's also the beauty of it. You know, exactly.
1: you can kind of choose one system to work on the other system. Exactly. And that's why it's so cool. It's it's fantastic. Judy, yeah. is there anything else that you want to say about your that we haven't covered in your book or that you'd like to uh, Anything else you'd like to say about your book well, specifically, and then we'll go to a wrap-up statement.
0: Oh well, thank you so much for having me. You're brilliant. You're so much fun to talk to. Dr. Oh no, Caroline, you and I so. could talk all night. I could, yeah. See I that. feel like we could go on forever. Yeah, yeah. But thank you so much. Um, oh, it really no, is an honor to be here. And if anybody wants to check out more of this work, I actually do have a bunch of free resources on my website. Wonderful. So even without purchasing the book, they can do the live quiz. They can it's check amazing. into the values card game that I have. And my website
1: is drjudyho.com. That's amazing. And now the last question I have for you is: What keeps you up at night? And what gets you going in the morning?
0: Oh, you know what keeps me up at night right now is just um, how how isolated we all really are sometimes. Oh, wow. Good you one. know. Mm. Just being able to be here with you in person mm. has been actually a really, really wonderful experience. Um, I know that sometimes it's just the logistical limitations, but even podcasts are mostly done sometimes distally. It's but so it's so nice, nice to both, get to have yeah. an actual conversation face to face. I agree. I agree. Um, so I just encourage everybody. At least once a day, like do a in real life interaction, right? We do I so much it. on the computer, on our phones and like make the time to connect with people at least one time a day where it's it feels brilliant. like it's a face-to-face because we're losing yeah. that. And I think that that actually is contributing sometimes to the, to the downfall of our society. Yeah. It and does. It, it contributes to
1: the downfall of our mental health, too. You, yeah. know? you can't live in isolation. That's absolutely wonderful. I love that. Thank and what you. gets you up in the morning? What makes you excited for the
0: oh, day? Well, I, I love my job. I love the things that I do. So what gets me up in the morning is just like what the day could bring. You know, Every oh, single day is so different in my schedule. And I feel very um, fortunate and blessed to have that's the kind wonderful. of work life that I live. But you've
1: made a choice with your mind to be like that, haven't you? I did that's yeah.
0: true see it's a choice that you make you've and made a you choice can always in- choose to think about all the terrible things that are happening exactly. every day, all the hardships or you
1: can wake up and think about each day as an opportunity okay so i'm going to ask you one last question i have i know that was the last one but this one is <laughs> a relevant one you are dealing with a lot of pain <laughs> in people's lives so you constantly on a day-to-day basis yeah. hearing very sad stories and seeing people that are broken how do you protect your mental health? Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. F- first of all, I'm an avid runner. And it really does help me to stay physically active because right. I'm not going to miss out on those free endorphins. You know, exactly. those are good free antidepressants that I'll have every day yeah. if I keep doing all of my exercises. But also, I, I make time to just do things that really make me unplug. Like, mm-hmm. I have these shows that I watch. I mean, so sometimes after i had a very hard day, I can't watch very scary and I, I get it yeah. can't watch Ozark can't watch no. like Game of Thrones no. <laughs> um, but I will something as simple as yeah I want to watch like Friends or like yes. Cupcake Wars yes. like I want to live yeah, in, yeah. <laughs> I want to live in a world where the worst thing it. that could happen is they don't make the 1000 cupcakes you exactly. know what I mean
1: exactly like, I love it. it's great yeah. so I need to sometimes unplug Turtles and unpack. watch
0: cartoons I recently just so. got Disney Plus so I started watching all of my old like favorite Disney movies I again, like it. Little Mermaid
1: and like The Lion oh, King I love it. It's so, so, it's so calming isn't it it is we went to go and see frozen recently and I just love it. Oh, I mean I just love yeah, the best, Did yeah. you see the musical? Or uh, no, we just we saw the movie, but yeah, yeah no, it's so nice to play. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, Judy, you've been amazing. It's been so exciting yeah. to meet with you in person and get to know you. Your work is fantastic, and I'd I would l- certainly love to have you back on the podcast again. Thank and you. and very very excited about what you're doing and keep keep going with the great work that you are doing. Thank you, thank you so so much for, for coming today. I, know. I appreciate it, and um, hopefully we'll get to keep in touch. Yes, please, let's do. And I'd love to have you back on the podcast. So thank, thank you, you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Doctor Caroline. I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf.